Great, good morning. Would you please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 11, uh, the gospel according to Mark, and we'll be looking at chapter 11 this morning. Uh, As you turn there, I want to say what a joy and privilege it is. I hope you're as excited as I am to begin this new season uh, at ECC in our life as a church, a new season of meeting on the Lord's Day. So this this morning, this happens to be a very historic and significant day for us as a church as we begin to gather on the first days of the week on Sundays uh, together. And we are also beginning a new year, right? 2022. And as we begin the new year, it often is time for people to think about goals for the year. Uh, some of you have made and have maybe some of you have already broken uh, New Year's resolutions. I like to think of them in terms of aspirations, what we want to grow in, what we want to be and do, uh, set goals for ourselves. For some of you, this involves diets. For others, it involves reading goals, uh, fitness goals. I have some personal weightlifting goals for the year. Uh, some of us would rightly make spiritual goals, and hopefully you're doing the Bible reading plan. I am as well. This is one of my goals. And I'm glad to say that week one, I'm already ahead. So I'm using the catch-up days uh, to read ahead. And it's good for us, even as a church, to set goals and to think about aspirations as we enter a new year. And especially as we enter this new season of meeting on the Lord's Day. Now, you know, we often think about big vision and things that we want to do as a church and ideals that we want to see the Lord accomplish and fulfill in and through us. But sometimes it's good to get back to what's basic, to what is essential for all churches everywhere. And if you heard the passage that was read earlier, Acts chapter 2, that's kind of a theme passage for our new sermon series for four weeks beginning today. In Acts chapter 2, we see the newborn church, the first church in Jerusalem where Peter preached God's word. 3,000 people came to faith in Christ and were baptized. And there begins the church on the day of Pentecost. And in that passage, you'll see that this church was marked by certain things. They were devoted to certain fundamentals. The text tells us they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, so to God's word, and to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. And as they did these things, they bore witness to Christ, and the Lord was adding to their number those who were being saved. So evangelism, so we have to think about those four disciplines as a church, the Bible, fellowship, evangelism, and prayer. And this morning, we'll be looking at that very fundamental discipline as we begin this series, aspiration for us as a church to grow in faith-filled prayer. How does Jesus, our Lord, feel about prayer in the community of his people, in the life of the church? Today's passage is going to help us see that. And so as we read Mark 11, I want to say I'm very indebted to a sermon I heard many years ago by my former pastor, Ryan Fullerton, who really helped me see the meaning and application of this text, Mark 11. 
And he entered Jerusalem, and beginning in verse 11, he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And they passed by in the morning. They saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Heavenly Father, would you have mercy on us this morning? Would you feed your sheep that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight? O Lord, my rock, my redeemer, work in us that which is pleasing in your sight by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So in this passage in the Gospel of Mark, we see two scenes that are woven together. Like a movie, the camera takes us to one scene and then to another, and then to this scene again, and to the other scene again. And this is a frequent technique that the gospel writer Mark, in this particular gospel, often uses. He will sandwich different scenes together, and the intent of sandwiching these scenes like this, as he tells the story of Jesus, is he wants to help us see the meaning more clearly. He wants to show us something significant and a relationship between, between these two incidents. And what I want you to see as we look at Mark 11, as we look at how Mark weaves together two scenes here, uh, I want you to pay attention to the structure. One scene is with Jesus with the tree outside the city, the fig tree. And the other is Jesus with the temple inside the city. So tree and temple and we're going to see them sandwiched with one another. So, scene one, right? the temple. And we're calling this observing the temple. Jesus is observing the temple, verse 11. He entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And that is kind of surprising. Because what you should be expecting here is kind of a climactic moment. Uh, if you're reading the context and you're reading Mark 11, you'll know that this is coming right at the end of Palm Sunday. Jesus has 
entered Jerusalem, the triumphal messianic entry and the riding on the donkey, people have been placing palm leaves at his feet and everyone is saying, Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna to the son of David. The king has come to his city and then he enters the temple and then all of a sudden he's looking around like a tourist and then he goes back to Bethany. You're expecting some action, but Jesus is like a tourist who's, you know, you show up at the Burj Khalifa and then you look at it and you look around and then he's gone. Well, what's going on there? So Jesus is observing what's happening. He's observing what's happening in his father's house in the temple. And it's not just an incidental looking around. No, Jesus is preparing for action. He's forming a plan. His eyes are making an assessment of what is happening in the temple and he is going to take action with a plan that you'll see enacted the next day. Jesus observes the temple. Do you know that Jesus also observes the church? His all-seeing eyes, his eyes of flaming fire examine us, examine our community. He knows our works. He tests our faith. You look in the book of Revelation, the first three chapters begin with Jesus speaking to particular local churches. And to every single one of those churches, he says again and again, I know your works. Do you wonder what Jesus observes in our church? Does he see a faith-filled community of disciples whose focus is on him? Or does he find empty religion? So Jesus observes the temple. And in the evening, he goes back to Bethany with his disciples. That's scene one, observing the temple. And we move then to the next scene where he's observing the tree. Observing the fig tree, verses 12 to 14. And I told you here, these scenes switch back and forth. It's like Mark is making a sandwich. It's a fig tree temple sandwich, all right? So what you'll see here, you'll see fig tree on this side, one slice of bread. Then you'll see the temple again in the center. That's the center of the sandwich. And then you'll see fig tree on the other side, the other slice of bread. So here, fig tree, verses 12 to 14. On the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, seeing in distance a fig tree and leaf. He went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. This is a pretty shocking incident in the story of Jesus' life. It's a very shocking incident in the Gospels. Jesus sees this fig tree covered in leaves from a distance as he's walking towards Jerusalem. He's feeling hungry, wants a snack. He comes up to the fig tree to get some fruit and then there's no fruit. And Jesus curses the fig tree and says, may no one ever eat from you again. It's the only instance in the Gospels where Jesus uses his miraculous power in a destructive way. And this incident has therefore caused a lot of challenges and problems for Bible interpreters. And Bible critics love to seize on it, right? So for instance, you know, uh, Bertrand Russell, the famous atheist of the last century, he said what we see here with this incident is an example of Jesus acting in vindictive fury. 
And here's what Bertrand Russell says. He says, I cannot myself feel that either in the matter of wisdom or in the matter of virtue, Christ stands quite as high as some other people known to history. He criticizes the Lord Jesus Christ because of this incident. And you wonder, is Jesus being short-tempered? You know, sometimes it's, it's kind of like when you act petty-minded. You know, yesterday we had the day of fasting and then we went to the prayer meeting in the evening and I was really hungry at the end of that. So we're driving to Alwada Mall and I know this Pakistani restaurant there, Al Ibrahimi and Alwada Mall food court. And I wanted to get my favorite dish from the Pakistani restaurant, which is Nihari. I was really excited and hungry. Get to Alwada Mall, go to Al Ibrahimi. Please give me one Nihari. And he said, sorry, sir, Nihari all finished. You know, when that happens, you just get like, you know, what? They don't have what I want. And you want to say, may no one ever eat from you. I'm, I'm never going to eat from this restaurant again. I'm going to put a Google review so that no one else eats from this restaurant again because they didn't get what I want. You know, or sometimes you know this with children, right? Kids sometimes will have a tantrum because you didn't get what you want. And you might look at this incident and wonder, what is Jesus behaving like that? It's not even the season for figs. He came up to this tree, poor tree, didn't have fruit. And then he says, may no one ever eat from you again. I want to say, Bertrand Russell is wrong. And I want to say, Jesus is not being short-tempered. He is not being petty-minded. He knows it's not the season for figs. No, what he is doing here is very intentional because this entire incident with the tree, Jesus is trying to give his disciples and us an illustration. He is giving his disciples a lesson of how he responds to faithless, fruitless, prayerless religion. Jesus will destroy it. He will wither it right to the roots and bring it to an end. This is why Mark gives us this sandwich of scenes, you see. He wants us to see that the fig tree represents the temple and its religion. Uh, the fig tree was a common biblical image for the people of Israel, for God's people. In the Old Testament, many times you'll see that the Lord compares the people of Israel to figs on a fig tree. So for instance, Hosea 9 verse 10, the Lord says, Like grapes in the wilderness I found Israel, like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season I saw your fathers. When you come to the New Testament in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus himself tells a parable about the people of Israel that compares them to a fig tree without fruit. Luke chapter 13 verse 6, he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. So friends, Jesus is not being quick-tempered here, nor is he behaving like a self-centered child. He's actually presenting an illustration of what he's going to do concerning the faithless, fruitless religion and the system of his people. He's giving a preview of what's going to happen at the temple. Because you see, this fig tree, it gave the appearance of life. It was covered with leaves. In fact, it had so much foliage and leaves that Jesus could see the leaves from a distance. It gives the promise of fruit, but there was no fruit. It gave the display, the show of life, but there was nothing on it except leaves. All leaves no fruit, just like the religious system of the temple. Lots of outward show, no inward faith, resulting in no fruit. And the next scene you're going to see 
how Jesus responds to that kind of religion. So we saw him observe the temple, observe the fig tree. Now we see judgment on the temple. Judgment on the temple. And we're coming to the center of Mark's sandwich here. right? Fig tree on this side, temple in the center, fig tree on the other side. And it's in verses 15 to 19. They come to Jerusalem. So Jesus enters the temple now in Jerusalem. Second time, he looked around yesterday. Now he's entering. And what does he see? He sees what, it, what, what has always been there in the temple is that the temple has become a souk. So it's like the souk in Dubai where everybody's buying and selling. There's money changers. There's noise. People bargaining, trying to get thing at the, things at the best price. People carrying their stuff through. There's all of these animals. There's the pigeons fluttering over here. There's the sound of mooing and bleating. The smell of animal dung. And all of this is taking place not outside the temple, but inside, in the court of the Gentiles, in the part of the temple which was reserved for non-Jews, people from the nations, to come and offer their worship. This was the one place where they could enter and worship God. And it's been turned into some kind of a carnival and souk. And Jesus responds by demonstrating his holy, righteous rage and his anger. He begins turning over the temple, uh, the tables here of the money changers. He's driving out the pigeons. He's not allowing anybody to pass through. He's causing a commotion. And by the way, this is not some kind of a sudden, quick-tempered reaction from Jesus. No, this is something that he's planned. It's a planned and calculated demonstration. Because when he came there yesterday and looked around, it was all the same. So it's not like he's taken by surprise and reacting. He's seen this and he's fulfilling a plan that he's Made And the key verse here, the reason for Jesus' demonstration, the key verse is verse 17. He was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus is citing there from two passages in the Old Testament. One is the passage that we opened our service with, Isaiah chapter 56. And in Isaiah chapter 56, we see God's intent for his people that they would be a light to the nations, that people from the nations would be drawn in to worship him, that his people would be a community of faith, a community from all the nations who would seek his face in prayer. Instead, the temple has become, Jesus quotes from Jeremiah 7, a den of robbers. And by the way, in the original, the language is really, really strong. The, the, uh, the contemporary English den of robbers doesn't really capture what Jesus is saying. A, a better way to put it in contemporary idiom would be to say, you have made this a cave of terrorists. That's what Jesus is saying. The Lord himself has come to his people, has come to his temple, and he finds them lacking. It's just a sham and a show. Lots of green leaves, big outward show, like a big religious carnival. But nothing on the inside. No faith. And Jesus repudiates it. He repudiates what the temple has become. It's lost its true purpose. It's lost its true focus. The entire temple must face judgment, must be torn down, must be rebuilt. In fact, the corruption of this religious system, you can see in the next two verses, verses 18 and 19, the religious leaders of this system are plotting 
to kill Jesus. They begin conspiring all the more to kill Jesus for what he teaches. And they eventually will. So from there, we move to the next scene. And the next slice of bread in this sandwich of scenes between the temple and the fig tree. We saw fig tree. We see this dramatic scene in the temple. And then we come back to the tree, which confirms what must happen. Scene four, judgment on the fig tree. Verses 20 to 22. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. So the fig tree that Jesus cursed by his word has withered all the way down to its roots and is destroyed. This is a miracle of destructive power by the word of Jesus. These guys have been through this day where they've seen him make a big commotion in the temple. And that temple, just like the fig tree, is going to be withered. What happened to the fig tree is, going, is what's going to happen to the entire old religious system that is faithless and fruitless. It makes a show of life. It makes a show of life externally, but does not bear fruit to God. The judgment on the fig tree is a pointer that judgment is going to come on the temple. And so what's the lesson that Jesus gives his disciples from this? Verse 22, have faith in God. What? We just saw Jesus go into the temple and clean house and turn over tables. Now we're seeing this fig tree where he spoke to the fig tree and said, no one's going to eat from you again and the fig tree is completely withered. And so Jesus, what's the lesson from this? Peter's going to ask Jesus, Jesus, look what? And Jesus says, have faith in God. Why is Jesus saying have faith in God? And then he follows it with a lesson on prayer. Well, Jesus is teaching his disciples how his people, how his church, how his new covenant community is going to be different from the old. He is telling Peter and these disciples, the men who will form the foundation of the church that Jesus is establishing, the foundation of the new covenant people of God, the new temple itself. He's telling them how they should be different from the fig tree and from the old temple. See, just like the fig tree had lots of leaves, the temple had a great show of external religion. They had a great building, lots of buzz and activity, lots of ministry and programs. But it had no faith, no prayer, no fruit, no life. And what Jesus is saying here to his disciples and to us is that's not going to be the way it is with you. Have faith in God. You should be different. The new community of disciples should be different from the old covenant people of God in this way. They should be marked by living active faith in God. And if you read verse 22, you'll notice in the original it's in plural and all of the verses from there on are in plural. What Jesus is saying is that the Jerusalem temple and that whole religious system must be replaced by a faith-filled praying community. My house shall be a house of prayer. 
for all nations. He's telling his disciples, you must be different from this tree and from this temple. So the question for us this morning, dear ECC, is this. Are we different? Individually, in our personal lives and as a church, are we different from that old system? See, there's a lot of similarities between us and the old covenant people of God, Israel. They had God's word, God's holy book. We have God's word, God's holy book, believe the same Bible. They believed in the same God that we believe in. They held on to God's truth. In fact, they were very, very religious, but they lacked living faith. There were a few exceptions in the Old Testament. You can go back and see, oh, Abraham believed God and David was a man of faith. But overall, as a whole, those people were marked by a hardness of heart. And they were dead on the inside, lacking faith. They were a community of unbelief. What about us, ECC? Are we different from them? Or are we the same? You know, and since uh, I moved here to Abu Dhabi in 2017, over the last four and a half years, we've seen 325 members. That's the exact count uh, as of this moment. We've seen 325 members uh, added to ECC, people who went through the process and committed as church members. And every time we add someone as a member, many of you have been through this process, uh, one of the elders will sit down with them, will have a conversation, get to know you a little bit more. And, uh, you know, we keep that information. We talk about it as elders as a group. And so uh, I've had the privilege of uh, thinking through 325 of those conversations. And the first question that you're asked in that conversation is, why do you want to join ECC? And so, you know, with all these 325 people, I find a common thread of different answers. All right. So people say they want to join ECC. Most common, they say, because you follow the Bible. Let's say ECC, I want to join ECC because it's such a Bible-based church. Uh, we follow the Bible's teachings at ECC. ECC is rooted in Scripture. Many people will say we're very thankful and want to join ECC because of the expository preaching and teaching of this church. Sometimes people will say, oh, I want to join ECC because it's so diverse. People from all different nations, you know, unified together. Some people will uh, say the congregational singing is, is so wonderful. And it is wonderful, you know, there are people who've left from here who miss singing together and lifting our voices at ECC. You know what I've never heard? Not one of those 325 people say. I want to join ECC because ECC is a church committed to prayer. I've never heard that. It's great that we have expository Bible preaching. It's great that we want to structure our church and be Bible-based and do everything according to the Word of God. It's great that we have congregational singing and people from many different nations become part of our church. But friends, all of that is worthless if we lack living faith. And living faith displays itself in prayer. True faith isn't just holding on to the truth of God or truths about God. No, true faith is trusting in the God of truth to be true to his promises and therefore crying out to him together day and night to answer and fulfill his word, believing that he will answer. And friends, in this regard, as a pastor of this congregation, 
I fear for us. I fear for this church. You know, the most poorly attended meeting in the church, in our church, not just in this season, but always, ever since I came here, the most poorly attended meetings in this church are congregational prayer meetings. I was asking a longtime member last night, why are the congregational prayer meetings so poorly attended? And, and he said, oh, it's always that way. Oh, pastor, you know, people are busy. Well, it's too busy for one more meeting in church, you know, kids' schedules and school and life and work and all of that. We're busy, busy, busy. And maybe that's why. But, you know, we've done other things. Last month, we had a family conference, a family ministry conference, you know, to equip parents in uh, discipling their children, attended by 100 people. Or think about just a couple of weeks ago, we had Christmas carols night. And we packed out this entire hall and packed out the overflow hall. 350 people came here to sing Christmas carols. But we can't even get 50 to join in congregational prayer. And, and you, might, you, know, you might hear that and you say, well, uh, you know, I, I pray in my personal quiet times. I pray in our personal life. And that's great. We must be people of prayer as individuals. But we also must be a community of prayer. My house shall be a house of prayer. Think about the book of Acts when the church was formed. They were devoted to prayer. All of the verses here in Mark chapter 11 are plural. We must be a people of prayer. And when we put 350 people for carols and another 100 people for family conference and nobody comes to prayer, that says something about our priorities, doesn't it? Friends, carols, family conference are great things, but they're optional activities, not commanded by God. Prayer is commanded. We must be a praying people. My house shall be a house of prayer, not a house of carols. And it's no use happily singing carols while our souls wither from a lack of faith and prayer. So how about this for some New Year's resolutions? How about picking up a copy of the members directory? You know, we, we often encourage this. We've kept encouraging this for years now. For years now, we say, brothers and sisters, please pick up a copy of this book. Pray for one another. Pray for one another by name. Pray through one page a day. It won't take you more than 10 minutes in your quiet time. Pray for the other brothers and sisters in this church. Pray for each other. I... Still, you know, it's a handful of people praying through the members' directories. I would say this is the next most important book after your Bible in your life. So make that a New Year aspiration for yourself. How about that? We do that. You know, I'm not even going to say pray through it once a month. I would like to encourage you to do that. How about you try to pray through this once this year in 2022? It shouldn't just be the elders and the staff praying for the members. It should be the members. It should be us praying for one another. How about another New Year's resolution? We want to make this simple for you, to commit to prayer. So going forward, every month of this year, all right, consistent pattern and schedule, second Sundays. Every second Sunday from this month going forward, 6 p.m., over here in the building, we will have a congregational prayer meeting. Put that on your schedule. Prioritize this. Let's be a house of prayer. You know, as you read the book of Revelation, again, I talked to you about how Jesus speaks to the different churches. And he speaks to one of those churches and says, you have a reputation for being alive, but actually you're dead. 
He speaks to another church and says, you've lost your first love. Jesus sets himself against those churches. For the church in Laodicea, which became lukewarm, he says, I'm ready to spit you out of my mouth. He threatens the church in Ephesus, I'm going to take away your lampstand and your witness. Jesus would rather have no church in that city than to have a church that is not devoted to him in prayer. And my prayer is this, brothers and sisters, my prayer for us for 2022 is that the Lord would change, that the Lord would be merciful to work in our hearts and change this prideful culture in our church where we love to boast and talk about how Bible-based we are. We like to talk about how diverse we are. We like to talk about, oh, vision and church planting, and we're going to be from the nations to the nations, but we do not humble ourselves in believing faith-filled prayer. Oh, that God would humble us. Oh, that the Lord would humble us. And oh, that the Lord would help us believe his promises and hold on to his promises. As we look at the rest of Jesus' teaching in this passage, we see such great and amazing, mind-blowing promises. He tells us how to pray. He tells us why we should pray. And he gives us two marks of a people of prayer. Two marks of our, the kind of prayer that we should have. And the first one is this, faith. Verse 22, he says, have faith in God. That's the first mark of a praying people. And he just doesn't just tell us to have faith in him. He wants to encourage us and motivate our faith. He makes such glorious promises of what God will do through faith-filled prayer. Look at verses 22 to 24. He says, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. So what does this mean? Maybe this afternoon, take your car, get in the car, drive out to Ras al take a good look at the Hafra mountain range over there, you take a good look at Jebel Jais, the highest mountain peak in the UAE, 1,900 meters approximately, and think about those mountains being uprooted and thrown into the Arabian Gulf. It's hard to imagine Jebel Jais even moving like half a kilometer. And Jesus is saying here, it's going to be thrown into the sea. If you believe and you pray. And you know, for thoughtful Bible-believing, oh, we're Bible-based Christians, Pastor, we've, we've got to be, we'll stop for a moment and be cautious here. Oh, we don't want to fall into the mistakes. We don't want to fall into the false doctrines of the health, wealth, and prosperity teachers uh, and the word faith movement and those who say, oh, just name it and claim it. We don't want to do that. No, 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 we don't want to do that, right? And, and we want to be cautious here and interpret the Bible properly and say, well, you know, Pastor, yeah, we can pray and ask for whatever we want. And, and you know, we need to pray according to God's will. We say, isn't it according to the sovereign plan and, and, and the will of God? Yes, we need to be cautious and we need to play, pray according to the sovereign plan and will of God. But as one Bible teacher said, those cautions are good, right? But once you've given all the cautions, Jesus still says that you will move mountains. So let's stop be, being busy, be wondering about you know, how to be careful in interpreting the passage and let's get busy praying that mountains will be moved. Let's stop being busy with noises, noisy, fruitless activities and let's get busy packing out the prayer meetings Filling the prayer meetings with faith-filled, mountain-moving, earth-shaking, miracle-working prayers. Church, do we believe 
Do we believe that the Lord Jesus will save people from sin, from the nations around us? That the Lord will save people from the least likely candidates in Abu Dhabi and bring them to the knowledge of him? Do we believe that we will see revival here in Abu Dhabi? That the Lord will do something far more than we can ask or even think? That we will see churches planted that proclaim Christ in the nations? He is the God of the impossible, you know. As you keep reading the Bible, you see this again and again. I was reading Genesis this week with Bible reading plan. And, and God is speaking to Abraham and said, God, all things are possible. Nothing will be impossible for God. You read the book of Acts and, and look at the early church. And look at the disciples facing persecution from all sides, facing setbacks, even martyrdom. And the gospel and the church and the word of God keeps on advancing as the Holy Spirit does mighty things in answer to the church's prayer. Acts chapter 4. They tell them stop preaching the word of God. What do the disciples do? They all gather together and they pray and they ask God that they would continue to preach with boldness and that he would move mightily through them. And guess what? That's what God did. That's what God did. That's what he does in the book of Acts. That's what he did in the rest of the New Testament. And that's what he's done for 2,000 years of church history. Entire nations, entire islands, entire populations have been turned to Christ through faith-filled, believing prayer. Maybe you've heard of the great Baptist uh, preacher Charles Spurgeon uh, in the 19th century who preached in England and saw thousands and thousands of people come to faith in Christ. And whenever Spurgeon took people for a tour uh, through the church building, the Metropolitan Bible Tabernacle Church, um, he would take them to the basement and he would say, this room here is the powerhouse of the church. It's the powerhouse of the church because that's the room where the members of the church would regularly gather to pray and pray and ask God to do mighty things. A young preacher once came to Spurgeon and he said, Oh, uh, Pastor Spurgeon, nobody comes to faith in Christ when I preach. Nobody gets saved. And uh, Spurgeon asked him, Do you really believe that people are going to get saved every time you preach? And he said, Well, no, not every time. And he said, yeah, That's why people don't get saved every time you preach. You got to believe people. We got to believe that God will act. You know, the problem with the health, wealth and prosperity gospel teachers, the false teachers, is not that they promise too much. It's that they promise too little. They take verses like this and they apply it to earthly, worldly things of this life. Instead of fixing our eyes on the kingdom of heaven and God who is upon his throne so that we can trust God that no mountain, no hindrance, no obstacle, no trial will come in the way of the advance of his kingdom in and through us. So brothers and sisters, we can pray with faith. We can pray with faith, believing for that hard-hearted person to whom you've been sharing the gospel, that hard-hearted family member that you've been trying to evangelize for years and years, pray with faith for that son or daughter or ch the children who are disinterested in the faith. Pray with faith. You know, maybe for our members who says, oh, we're meeting on Sundays now, but my employer won't let me gather. Let's pray. We've already seen so many answers to prayer where the schedule was changed. For this pandemic, for the end of the pandemic, let's pray with faith that God would bring this to an end. 
that the gospel and God's kingdom would continue to advance even in spite of this mountain of a pandemic. Say this mountain shall be moved for anything and everything that comes in the way, whatever trial we face in our individual lives as Christians, as a church, let's pray with faith that God's gospel would go forward through it and believe that it will be done. Jesus says, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours, says the Lord. Let's pray with faith. That's the first thing that should mark our praying community, a community of disciples. Is faith. Faith. The second mark here that Jesus gives is forgiveness. When we come to pray, we must be marked by forgiveness. Verse 25. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Friends, not only is the church to be a community of faith, the church must also be a community of forgiveness. We are the people who have been forgiven. How can we not forgive? It's very simple. It means no unforgiveness, no bitterness with other brothers or sisters in Christ, no living in unreconciled relationships and then trying to come to God in prayer. If there's an unreconciled relationship and you know you're trying to go to alternate services or one person sit here, another person sit there, you need to sort that out. If there's anyone that comes to mind today, this morning, with whom you're living in unforgiveness or an unreconciled relationship, do not delay. Go and make it right today. Resolve right now in your heart. I'm going to go and extend forgiveness or ask for forgiveness and sort it out. You see, Jesus wants us not to be like old covenant Israel, like that old religious system. He wants us to be a people who are marked by faith and by forgiveness. He wants his church to be a faith-filled, praying community of forgiven sinners who forgive just as we have been forgiven. And here's the beauty of what Jesus desires and demands of us. What he desires and demands of us is also what he died to fulfill in us. Both of these marks of his people, faith and forgiveness, are marks that Jesus died, poured out his blood to purchase. See, Jesus pronounced judgment on this faithless temple. The temple and its system had to be brought to an end. And as you keep reading Mark's gospel, you'll see it ends with the evil religious leaders of that system nailing Jesus to the cross and putting him to death. But they didn't realize that this was part of God's plan. That in his death, Jesus was establishing a new temple, the true temple in himself. And we become his temple as he gathers us from the nations into him. And Jesus died on the cross as a substitute in our place, taking the penalty upon himself for faithless sinners like us so that we might receive forgiveness and so that he might grant faith 
to our dead hearts so that we might be those who forgive one another and we might be those who seek God's face in faith-filled prayer. We can pray because Jesus died to save us. He died to bring us to himself from all the nations and to make us a house of prayer for all nations. So maybe you're here this morning and you've never known him. You've never had any kind of faith in Jesus. You've never experienced the forgiveness of sins that only he can give. You've never experienced the ability to come to God and have access to God as father because of what Jesus has done. Oh, maybe you're here this morning and like the fig tree, you're covered in leaves, but there's no faith inside and there's no fruit toward God. Whatever the case, I want to call and invite you to come to Jesus, the merciful Savior who can give you true faith. Friends, in the cross of Christ, there is grace and forgiveness and there is power. There is power to change, even for faithless, prayerless Christians. In Jesus, there is power to make us those who move mountains by our prayers. You know, a few days ago, I was uh, with a friend and he was telling me a little story about what happened in his house. Uh, they had bought a freezer and it was one of the upper floors of the house. And uh, the freezer, they had put a lot of meat into the freezer right, to keep it there and to use over time. And my friend uh, was just going to iron some of his shirts and he unplugged the freezer, plugged in the iron, ironed his shirts, and then unplugged the iron and forgot to put the freezer plug back in. And then a few days later, they started smelling, you know, this kind of odor in the house, all over the place. And they were wondering, where is it coming from? Smelling the walls, wondering if something, you know, like a rodent had died or something, wondering if something was wrong with the sewage system. And then days later, they realized, oh, this freezer was unplugged. And they opened it, it was filled with rotting meat. And they had to throw it all out and sanitize that freezer inside out. The freezer was disconnected from its power source. OECC, I pray that we would not be disconnected from our power source this year. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of prayer that you do indeed move mountains when your people pray with faith. And I pray, Lord God, that you would fill our hearts with the kind of faith that calls out to you day and night, individually and as a community, to work, to act, to do things beyond what we can ask or even dream. In Jesus' name, amen.